Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. Today we have uh, one of my uh, uh, favorite people to interact with, Batia Ungar Sargon. Uh, you are the deputy opinion editor for Newsweek, and you do a bunch of other stuff as well, right? Yes, correct. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure at this point, your listeners know that you've written for us at Newsweek, um, mm. pieces that are really important that they should all really, really head over and check out because um, they're the kind of pieces that I think get to what we're going to talk about, but just overcoming that divide and, um, you know, finding the truth beyond the polarization of which there is a lot. So thanks for those great pieces. Sure. Thank you uh, for giving me the opportunity. Um, so I've I've talked to you a lot about this project, this book, uh, this this show. Um, you're one of uh, the very few people in modern journalism that's taken the time to to point out a lot of the unnecessary divisiveness that's going on stuff that doesn't necessarily even make sense. It's just like people are picking teams because they feel like they need to in a lot of ways. Um, you've been in this, in this field for a long time. How, how do you, how do you frame all this? Like what, how do you, where do you feel like things started to go wrong for uh, media and the national discourse? That's such a great question. I mean, I think to me, um, as someone who cares a lot about the class divide, which I think is driving a lot of this, I think a lot of the um, kind of 90s era economic policy where the Democrats um, really joined hands with Republicans to abandon the working class in favor of sort of open borders, free trade style thinking. To me, you know, stuff like that, NAFTA, you know, globalization, outsourcing of these great working class, middle class jobs to China, um, that was both a symptom and a cause of the divide. Um, 
because what ended up happening was, you know, up through the 70s, you had so much economic mobility, social mobility, even for the working class. I mean, most working class Americans in the 70s were living solidly middle class lifestyles. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, had a huge minimizing effect on ideological polarization um, because people were living in sort of mixed income, mixed political parties, neighborhoods, they were in community with people who they disagreed with. Um, what happened over the course of the last 50 years is there was this great sorting to where you had anybody who could make it um, in the knowledge industry, abandoned sort of small town America, rural America, I'm speaking broadly in generalizations, but move to the cities, get these knowledge industry jobs. And in, once in those jobs, what they started to do was create an economy that worked really well for people in knowledge industry jobs mm. and really poorly for anybody who works with their hands or drives for a living or creates things for a living or makes things for a living. Um, and I think that that sort of class stratification, um, that's really where polarization started because it was essentially a great distraction for the side that was supposed to be on the side of the little guy who no longer was. So instead of being able to say to working class Americans, vote Democrat because we have your economic interest at heart. They knew that was no longer the case. They had their own economic interests at heart, the elites. And so what they were started to say was the other side is racist. The other side hates women. The other side is mm. domestic terrorists, right? Which is what we have now. So to me, it's really bound up in like the economic story, but I'm really interested in what you think, like, where do you think it started and what do you think it stems from? Uh, no, I agree with that. I think it's just the natural fruition of the magician's patter that that is politics, right? The, uh, you know, here's the real problem, but look over here, here's a shiny yeah. set of keys. Yeah. Um, now you talk about, you. this is actually something you discuss pretty frequently is the Democratic Party abandoning the, the working class. I would add to that, that uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, the Republican Party abandoned the liberty class as well with nation building wars and mass surveillance yeah. and all this other stuff. And they also abandoned the conservative minded class because they expanded the government at a rate we've never seen before. Um, <clears throat> so it, it's almost like we're, we're, we're still trying to, we're, we're trying to play baseball with football pads almost, right? Like no, none of the items that are working as intended. So, so we're, we're left in a situation where maybe it is, just the ideological differences that are left to to fight over because everything else is too confusing, maybe. Like no nobody's doing what they're supposed to do. Words don't mean what they once did. Yeah. Yeah. Um you talk about the great sorting. That's a really good point about uh the technology industry uh and how a lot of people abandon rural America and the the obviously the result of that is gonna be concentrated centers in in highly liberal areas and you will have as you will in any liberal area you'll have a lot of uh leftists but then you have a lot of people who are just browbeaten into accepting leftism so they they can just go about their lives and do work right um <clears throat> do you think do you think that the work from home stuff that's happened over the last few years is going to have some uh, inverse effect where we unsort ourselves back out into, you know, the hinterland of America. Um, it was so funny because there was this one week, um, 
when the hosts on Fox News real, like they had been crowing and crowing about how all these, you know, everybody's abandoning the big liberal cities to move to rural America. And then there was this one week where they realized like, oh my God, <laughs> they're all coming to where we live mm. and they're going to start voting. <laughs> it was really funny. Um, you know, I have to say, um, I think that the, the, I think we're already in um, something of a woke lash because it's, become so clear how little appetite black and Hispanic Americans have for this nonsense. Mm. And so to me, like the spread has almost, I think it's reached its, um, it's, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the apex. And mm. I think that we're already in a moment of people, I mean, for the first time in my life, um, after the left won a series of extremely important civil rights gains on issues like, you know, civil rights for black Americans, for gay and lesbian Americans, for women, where, for the first time in my life, because of left wing overreach, because they they sort of won all those really important wars and then moved way too far. They were like, well, what are we going to fight for now? And started mm. fighting for crazy things. Um, Americans are becoming more conservative, I think. And you're seeing that not just in like their electoral preferences, but I think you know, to me, the importance of your project is that it is really speaking to Americans where I think they are at right now, which is, you know, no one's coming to save us. We have to save ourselves and we have to save ourselves by reinvesting in what makes us Americans and reinvesting in each other, not from a like big government top down kind of a way, but from a question of like, what do we owe each other as Americans? Like what, how do we rebuild the texture of American life so that it's thick enough to sustain ourselves beyond these sort of failed institutions? And I think that to me is why your project is so important. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking. It's, it, it's very easy to monolith things. It's very easy to, to look at large institutions and say, this institution is corrupt. Um, so I'm going to become cynical or nihilistic about it. And I, I feel like that's where I, I really feel like the silent majority, the silent millions, that's a, a large portion, if not a, 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 a majority are in that position. Now they're just like, I'm tired of hearing about this stuff. I'm going to tune out. And it's, it has the same effect as the, as, as what we've done up until this point to allow this to happen in the first place. Um, uh, you're, you're exactly, no, nobody would ever start building anything from the top down. Right. Like that doesn't make any sense. And when there are structural issues uh, in, in anything, whether it's, you know, society or an institution or like literally in a building, the first place you look is the places that, uh, you know, that support all the weight. And that's the people. Not only do we support all the weight, but we also, uh, uh, we're generally the foundation and a bottom up society, which is what we want. Um, if the bottom sucks, then the whole thing is going to suck. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, that's just kind of how yeah. it is. I think we've uh, we've spent enough time complaining and blaming everybody else for our own problems. It's really interesting because the, the people that would call themselves citizen that consider themselves libertarian or conservative or classical liberal or people that care about America will go a long way in, in indicting their opponents, I guess, their political opponents like you, you guys are all victims. You do this, you do that. But what, what exactly is it that we're doing? You know what I mean? Like, uh, 
if if a government, I said this uh, on another show, if the government's going to be uh, for and by the people, the only way it's ever going to be good is if the people are good, right? And it's not enough to be good. You have to do good. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is key. And I and I it, I'm my I'm working on a project now about, you know, who is the American working class and what do they want? What are their aspirations? What are their goals? I talk to working class Americans every day. And what they tell me is often very surprising, you know. So, for example, you know, wages, you know, big problem, a big issue, a big concern. Um, they don't support a national minimum wage because it makes no sense to have a national minimum wage. And a right. lot of them will tell me I will lose my job if that happens because they have to worry about their small, you know, their employer, right? If it's a small business um, and and something, but, but, but that doesn't mean that the rights kind of trickle down, um, you know, free market bootstrapping is, is, is the answer. I mean, that is also very alien. I think that, that the difference between bootstrapping and autonomy is extremely important because, mm. you know, you, to have, in, in autonomy is I want to have um, control over my life. I want to have control over my destiny. I want to have a say over what happens to me. You know, that can be um, taken away from you by things like the free market or or when it's working against you. And, and so what I'll often say to conservatives is, you know, okay, we can agree a national minimum wage won't work, but what are you doing to make sure that the people you stand next to in church who are sort of who can't sleep at night because the next bill could could mean homelessness to them. What are you doing for them from your point of view as a conservative? Or you know, for example, um, something I think is really important: single family income, being able to raise a family on that. Right, that used to be a central tenet of the American dream. You know, a father can work and support his family, and his wife mm. can stay home and raise the children. You know, maybe she wants to go work later. Great, you know, but that she has that choice. They have that choice as a family. You know, that's now not possible in the America of today. So I, I you know, I, I ask conservatives, well, what? Okay, I agree with you. Yeah, forget all this pre-K, free pre-K stuff. That's a ruse. Forget the big government answer. But what is your answer? What are you doing to, to create a culture in corporate America that is going to sustain families, working class families on a single income and allow us to get back to that American dream. And I totally agree with you. I think at this point, like the answers are very much a question of a culture, but you have to create that culture from the bottom up. I mean, the workers, they want that. They know what mm. it is, you know, but it's the people who sort of have power. Okay. You want to have power. Great. Like you don't want the government to take that. Great. What are you going to do from a cultural point of view to fix these problems that like leftists have been better at calling out, honestly? Yes, for sure. And, uh, you know, just as a socially conscious person, somebody that wants, uh, you know, and, and any reasonable person, it should matter to you that your country is doing well, that your community is doing well, yeah. because not not just because it's good, but also because it's good for you and your family. Right. I mean, that's kind of the whole point of doing all this stuff. If you want to warn people off bad decisions and government intrusion, uh, it's incumbent upon you to provide a better solution and your support in that solution, right? Otherwise, you're full of shit, frankly. I mean, that, otherwise, you're not doing anything. You're just pointing out flaws. <sighs> and there's enough of that. I mean, we, we've, I personally have had enough of the, the constant noise and rotation of pundits on both sides pointing out how bad everything is without any effort made to solve anything. Um, <clears throat> it's very bizarre. Um, so I want to get into 
this that, that that was good preamble i think we've kind of set the tone for this i want to talk about this what what i think is the solution something you hinted at before which is you know kind of bottom up reconstruction of our culture and i think it's it starts with people being better citizens that's the only thing you can really control like i can't make other people vote for things most people can't organize rallies and and and, and you know do direct action and, and and you only have your one vote but you know the the two things you can't control and i say this a lot are your attitude and your effort you can control both of those things nobody can stop you from con- from controlling both of those things um so for me i started looking at definitions both like in the dictionary and in uh law libraries in like in old writings, you know, from when re- when Western republics started to develop and what it meant to people. And my favorite definition of the word citizen, which I've said a couple of times in previous shows, is a legally recognized member of a state with associated rights and obligations. Now, going back to what I said before, the kind of leave me alone conservative libertarian crowd very frequently accuses, um, and rightfully so, a large portion of our society of being victims and putting social currency in victimhood and accepting their victim status and all that stuff. <sighs> Boy, I mean, honestly, I can't think of a, I can't think of a difference, a real difference between that and just saying my rights and ignoring my obligations and responsibilities. Right? Like you, you've not taken anything into your own hands when you just complain about what you're not getting instead of putting in effort that you're that you should be required to put in um that that's like anything you do in life a personal relationship working out educating yourself uh any anything pretty much that you do in life you're going to get out of it some factor of what you put into it and what is the average american putting into america right now Yeah, I just don't know the answer to that. So I want to hear just just a couple of thoughts from you on what you think it means. Like you talk to working class people probably more than anybody in media right now. What do you think it means for the average American to be a good citizen and contribute to their culture and society? It's such a great question. I mean, I think a lot of people are sort of just struggling to get by. Um, you know, that I, that's sort of my biggest problem with the discourse right now is that um, you have a kind of left that's hyper focused on the dependent poor, like people who really can't take care of themselves. You know, uh, you know, drug addicts, mentally ill people, um, people who are d- disabled, right? all of their attention is sort of on those people who the state, you know, they believe the state should be taken care of. And anybody who's not in their sort of top 10%, they kind of want to affix to that bottom and have them all living on this very expanded welfare state, which is, of course, not what working class Americans want. And then on the right, you have this trickle down ideology where it's like, you know, anything that works for the free market is going to work for everybody, which, you know, it just it does not doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. You know, like the free market was very happy to ship all of our great jobs, a lot of great jobs to China and Mexico. And you know, you have you see the deaths of despair, 107,000 people committed death by opioids. You know, that's not, you know, those people are not 
um, you know, being taken care of by the free market. And, and so basically there, you know, the right is very focused on the top 5%, the rich and the, the left is folk, you know, they are the top 10% and they're very focused on the bottom, but nobody's really speaking to the great middle. And that middle of course is very diverse economically. Some people have a solidly middle class life, you know, they own their own homes, their kids are upwardly mobile. Some people are really working poor. I mean, they work and work and work and they can't crawl out of that hole. Um, so it's very diverse. And I, I think, you know, it depends where you are in that, you know, in, in that makeup. Um, my experience talking to working class Americans is that they are deeply patriotic. They care a lot about this country. They feel totally abandoned by both parties. Nobody represents them. There's nobody really speaking to, um, you know, a socially conservative, but economically slightly more liberal person in America, even though they make up a quarter of Americans. They're sort of they've been sort of erased from the um you know, from the conversation. Um, so I think for, for a lot of those people, like what it means to be an American is not exactly what you're describing, not to contribute to the hate and the divisiveness. Um, something I tell people a lot, um, you know, I explore this a lot in my book is that, you know, every time you're on the internet and you see something that makes you feel enraged, you know, a stranger said something and you feel that like, oh, I can't believe somebody thinks this. Like it feels, it's very physical, you know, it feels like road rage almost. Every time you have that feeling about a stranger on the internet, someone just made a million dollars. It's not normal to feel that way about a stranger. And they've really hacked us and they've turned our hearts into like, you know, the place where they make millions and millions and millions. I'm not kidding. It really is a million dollars. You know, whether it's a media company or a social media company, like they are making their money off making you hate your fellow American. And you can say no to that every minute of every day. You know, it's like hard. You have to train yourself. But Mm -hmm. every time you have that feeling like it's to that should not make you every time you have that feeling you should think oh wow like the elites really want us to hate each other because the more we hate each other the less likely it is that we will start that work of building back up american society from the bottom up and be able to have a real constituency that can provide a countervailing force to to their power sure yeah i mean divide and conquer right if somebody's trying to divide you then they are 100 percent trying to conquer you one totally. one thing follows the other um and uh you know you know me i'm not a religious person, but th- this this wisdom is thousands of years old. Uh, it's in the New Testament and Titus. Um, it's it says something to the effect of uh, warn a divisive man once and then warn him a second time, but don't warn him a third. Have nothing to do with him anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's difficult to know when to apply that. You know what I mean? Like I, I think what we're looking for is a is a good balance between empathy and accountability you know what i mean um yeah like taking the time to understand why somebody's upset and letting them know that you understand or letting them know that you're trying to understand but also letting them know that you're not gonna you know just accept their poor behavior i think is a really interesting concept it's one that uh our buddy schellenberger his research on homelessness and drug addiction is so good in that because it found that just giving them housing, which was a premise for a lot of progressive cities on the outside, you get about 90 days out of those people before they're recidivists. Right. But if you tie their housing, it, you can give them free housing, but if you make them get a job and pass a drug test, then now they're in there for like long-term like years. Um, yeah. And it makes sense. I mean, that's how we, that's how we teach children. I, I don't know why people find it demeaning. Like there's some, certainly the strategy changes when you're trying to train 
people in different circumstances, different levels of intelligence, different levels of education and stuff like that. But the principles are basically the same, right? I mean, it's classical or operant conditioning uh, or, uh, you know, you're, you're using uh, parables to teach lessons that can, that are broader than just the specific example giving in that parable. You know what I mean? It's, it's something that you can take with you and use in other places in life. Um, but it's, I think it's the tribalism is, is probably inevitable, right? Cause that's how our brains work. Our, our brains are best at identifying threats and benefits. And if something isn't clearly a benefit to us, then we're going to associate it as a threat. Typically, that's just how the human brain works. Uh, it's all, all mammal brain brains work. Um, <clears throat> tribalism isn't going anywhere. So maybe we can teach people uh, through our words and effort that they can base their tribe on something that ac actually matters. You know what I mean? So does race and... For the vast majority of people in this country, do, does race and gender ideology and right-left politics and things like that, do they really affect your life And other than just making you angry on the internet? The answer to that is very clearly no. And you can see it in exit polling for every major election, election we have. There, none of them show that people are voting because of that stuff. It's never because of that. But this idea of putting power back in anybody's hand or into everybody's hands. Like you do this and the result will be this. It's the, uh, the Ikea effect. Are you familiar with that? Mm -mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the Ikea effect is a psychological phenomenon where if somebody buys a product that's unassembled, and even if it's, even if they just assemble the last 20%, it's called the 80, 20 rule. If they just assemble it the last 20%, they feel a greater sense of ownership over it oh, because wow. they did something. Yeah. So I think, Oh, that's so interesting. Mm. What I want to do here is give people, you know, like briefly lay the background, but I think everybody's pretty aware of what's going on, but also give them some ideas and tools for things they can do in their life and discussions they can have with other people that will empower the the bottom, you know what I mean? To, to, you know, I guess to displace the top because right now the top is what's it, it, it may seem like a pyramid because of the numbers, but if you, if you made the pyramid based on the amount of power and comfort, then that pyramid would be inverted. Right. Or potential power maybe. Right. Yeah. 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 Give me just one moment. I'm going to do some uh, advertisements so we can keep this show on the air right now. Ghostbed is offering 40% off Ghostbed bundles where you get a mattress and an adjustable base. For everything else, 30% off if you use the code DRINKINGBROS at ghostbed.com forward slash DRINKINGBROS. You can buy a mattress for like 35 At the high end, it's 35 bucks a month if you use their zero down, 0% financing plan that extends now up to 60 months. They've got the best beds in the world, best pillows in the world. And take advantage of that deal. They've been a loyal sponsor for... About five years now, everybody raves about them. You can go look on their site. If you go to ghostbed.com forward slash drinker bros, you can see the reviews from actual drinker bros. It's crazy. Uh, 20, 25 year warranty, depending on the bed. You can try it for 101 nights. Um, we live here in Texas. It's 100 degrees every single day. So if you need a cooling mattress, this is the place to go because every single one of their mattresses are cooling and their pillows and sheets are as well. So 
If you're looking for that best deal, it's 40% off if you get a mattress and an adjustable base, and then anything else you add to that order, or 30% off everything else if you use the code DRINKINGBROS at ghostbed.com forward slash DRINKINGBROS. Next up, we got chowmeals.com. Talked about this a little bit yesterday. Uh, It's a new meal prep service that I'm using, and man, very I'm very happy. Uh, it's they have the best, um, <clears throat> freshest meals. I swear to God, it's so good. It's it's a ridiculous amount of goodness. Um, you go in, uh, you get an email, and they say, "Hey, come check out our menu." You go to your, uh, you go to you log into your uh, account, choose the meals that you want for that week, and then the day before shipment, they prepare and then ship them. They're fresh. They have both hot and cold options. Uh, I've never had a meal prep service where the meat isn't always overcooked, where the potatoes aren't always either under or overcooked, where the vegetables are nasty. Um, I've never had one that actually had cold dishes, like salads and wraps and things like that, where the ingredients weren't all jacked up. Everything is so fresh and tastes so good. Um, The breakfasts they have are incredible. Lots of protein. Uh, it's it's kind of based around keto. And, and if you've heard of him before, you probably have heard of Chef Rush. He was a White House chef for a very long time. This is his company. Um, it is amazing. So if you want to get the deal, if you want to sign up and uh, get a bit of a discount on there, go to chowmeals.com. Use the code GETFUCKED, of course. Uh, and you'll get a nice discount and, uh, and set up your set up your meal prep. And you can go in every week and choose different meals. And uh, let me know how you like them. I mean, honestly, I, I hope I'm not. <laughs> I hope I'm not in a vacuum here. I mean, Brittany's already ordered some. Uh, a couple of my friends have already ordered them as well, based on my recommendation. Recommendation, they all love them. So I really want to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, buy some, take pictures, post them on the internet, tag me in them, and uh, then I'll know. Then I'll know for sure. All right, let's get back to the show. For sure. Um, so we're here today specifically. You you chose <clears throat> to talk about the principle. I will reject divisiveness in all its forms. What does that What does that mean to you? Um, I just think that um, it, I mean it ties into everything we've been talking about. Um, I remember. <laughs> you know, I had the, the Trump derangement syndrome. And one of the things that made me stop having it was just, I was so sick of feeling angry and powerless. It's just such an obvious thing. I was just so sick of feeling that way. I thought there has to be a way out of that feeling. And it turned out the way out of that feeling was to have a much more objective mm. sense of like who this person was, what his failings actually are, but also what his successes were and why he was a tribune for so many people that I care about personally, um, you know, that feeling of powerlessness comes from the fact that people are, you know, using our hearts to get power and they have enslaved our emotions to their profit motive. And we have to say no to that because it's, it's, it's led to such a disaster. Like you said, the inverted triangle, the people at the top have so much power and there's so few of them. I mean, we're headed towards, if we're not already in an oligarchy, you know, in this post pandemic world where we saw, you know, the greatest transfer of wealth from the working and middle class to the, to the oligarchs at the top, to the billionaire class, 
Um, it, it's just, it's, it's enraging, but you know, we can't get stuck in that place of like, oh, it's enraging. These people who are supposed to represent us do nothing for us. They expect us to represent them and to be their foot soldiers. And honestly, I think I learned a lot about this from people who are not, you know, in the elites because, you know, people, working class Americans are extremely post-partisan. I mean, that's not to say that they don't vote. A lot of people vote, but they work alongside other people who have different politics than them. And they just don't care at all. I mean, the whole polarization phenomenon is a totally elite phenomenon. It's for people who are making money off of it and getting power off of it. And that's it. And everybody else can see through it at this point. And so I think, you know, I am religious. So to me, it's very spiritual. It's a spiritual practice to say like, no, we're not going to allow this to divide us because what unites us as Americans is so much more important. And, um, you know, how dare they try to make us hate each other at a time when we've never been more united about the most important values that this country was founded on, you know, in order to make money and get power. It's it's appalling. So I, I guess I would say that's what it means to me as yeah, like take a, a page out of, you know, workers notebooks and you know, I talk to people all the time or like, yeah, they're, you know, either in, they're in a union and 75% of the union is conservative and 25% is liberal. And yeah, things get heated when abortion comes up in the break room or whatever. But, you know, the, you know, I hear over and over again, you know, good wages, safety in the workplace benefits, like this stuff should not be partisan. You know, this stuff is so much beyond it. And I hear other things like, you know, exactly like you were saying, you know, maybe I'm doing okay, but if my neighbor's not doing okay, if my, if there's substance abuse in my neighbor's home, you know, if they're house to falling apart where's my kid going to go and play right mm. like how, who are they going to talk to and um you know at, on the question of housing or i just want to say i think it's so interesting you brought it up you know i think the reason michael schellenberger's work is so important is because it really reveals you know again like how the interests of the working class and the interests of the poor are not the same but the left is hyper focused on the poor so what they want to do is build these like high, there's like a, a housing crisis, right? Like American families cannot afford to buy homes that they will pass on to their children. So what's the left's answer? It's to build high rises and give homeless drug addicts apartments. <laughs> it's like ridiculous. They're going to trash them because they don't own them, right? They, what they want is for every working class family who can't afford a home to be in section eight housing. It's like, that's not what they want. That's not an answer. But then you look at the rights, like, well, what's their answer to the high housing crisis? Nothing. The free market will take care. Of course, it's not going to take care of it. You look at, you know, housing in New York, you, you have these situations where liberal cities have become like very feudal. So you have these like elites living in like homes that they really nice homes they own. And they have Amazon, you know, packages delivered to them from people who could never dream of even renting in these neighborhoods, right? They have to travel like, you know, two hours to get to work because they live out in the outskirts, it's like, like very poor and very rich and nothing in between. Um, yeah. So just rejecting divisiveness, I think, is, is super important because, um, you know, both sides are failing to represent, you know, working class Americans. Both sides actually do have a little piece of the puzzle. Like, mm. I think marriage is very important. You hear that a lot from conservatives. Um, you know, it's very important to economic um, mm. mobility. Housing is a really important thing. You hear that from the left, although they don't really have the right solution. So ju just just remembering that more unites us as Americans and divides us like that's the only way that we get out of this. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the ownership thing is, is super interesting to me. Um, as I said, the, the Ikea effect, right? I mean, what, what, yeah. what, what's the, what, what would, what should we expect culture to be like if, if, you know, 
Klaus Schwab gets his wish and that's that you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Right. Like that's, that, that sounds very like I, I'll own nothing. So I'll have no real purpose in life, which we know is, is one of the leading causes of, of, you know, depression and, and suicide. Um, I, I think the, uh, and you'll be happy part is because they're planning to dose us up with Soma, right? I mean, that, that, that's the inevitable, uh, uh, solution to that problem. But I think about the ownership of not just property, although that's a huge deal for, for middle-class people and in, in their economic state, because the vast majority of wealth created by middle-class people is in the equity in their mortgage throughout their lifetime. Um, there's a large supplement in, a, in the form of 401ks now, but it's still primarily the, the vast majority of money they pass on from one generation to the next is through property that they own. Um, <clears throat> so you're not only recreating this situation where upward mobility uh, is a problem, but now it's intergenerational upward mobility is a problem. And that is the foundation of a caste system, right? That's how that happens. Is that these people are poor for three generations. So, oh, that's the Smith family. They're poor. They've always been poor. They will always be poor. That's unacceptable. Like all of these things that we treasure about the American experiment, the liberty, the opportunity, it only exists if it exists for everyone. So that's the, that's the part that I always come back to when we're discussing divisiveness. It's none of these things that you think matter, matter. Um, like, it, and it's, I think it's important to have these conversations because you're, when you see somebody that's different than you or thinks differently than you, your brain is doing its job correctly when it identifies that as a potential threat. That's, it's supposed to work that way. I think we need to accept that as a reality because that's how, that's, that's how our brains work. Sun, sunlight's the best disinfectant, right? So you tell, just tell the truth, tell the truth, explain exactly what's happening. Like, Hey, I see you, this people, the, the conservatives have been really critical of these implicit bias tests, bias tests, but they're, of course, that's what is happening. We've, we've got 250,000 years of evolution programmed into our brain that that something that looks different than me that has like slightly longer fingers or something because it might be a, they may have retractable claws that might be a threat now so i have to worry about that that's how your brain your brain is functioning properly when it makes that distinction but we are sentient creatures now that have language and culture and it's unacceptable to rely simply on your base instincts that's the conversation that needs to be had not that not not that i'm colorblind that's nonsense right nobody's colored you shouldn't be colorblind why would you be um, you should recognize things for what they are. And we've done ourselves a great disservice by not stating that plainly, that all of this divisiveness is inevitable, but it's also curable. We've cured it before. Like warring factions have become friends time and time again. We're, we're pretty good friends with Japan now. Um, and we're the only country to ever drop a nuke on somebody, and they're the only country to have a nuke dropped on them. <laughs> And we, we are the best of friends now. And I don't, I don't you know, I, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it, that's the reality, right? Japan decided to uh, abandon their short-lived imperialism and do what they do really well, right? And join the world community. And they did it because we helped them. Like, yeah, we, 
obviously we were at war with them. Obviously we forced an unconditional surrender uh, and blah, blah, blah. But after that, the, in, in Europe and in uh, Japan, the Marshall Plan and the plan in Japan to rebuild their economies and get them sorted back into the, like what, where was that in Iraq and Afghanistan? At what point did we try to take the natural industries of Iraq and Afghanistan and export them to the world without any benefit to ourselves? You know what I mean? To give them an economy. And that there's no better solution to war than people having jobs. I just don't know. I, we, we can't have any of these conversations unless people are willing to agree on the very basic fundamental facts of the case, which is, yes, we are all divisive by nature. We are tribalistic by nature. But we now, as intelligent, sentient, cultured people, have the ability to redefine what our tribe is. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think is super important. And I wonder how we do that because... I, I want to hear your thoughts on this about the, especially about the working class. Um, more and more, as you said before, the working class is made of uh, of a mixture of uh, white rural Americans and Black Americans and Hispanic Americans. Yeah, like that. That's yeah the majority of that group. And, and to be honest, aside from a few key, or aside from a few. Uh, I guess you could call them wedge issues. Those people more or less agree on totally everything, right? They just want to live comfortable lives, own property, raise their kids, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But there's still a lot of distrust among those groups. And I wonder what we can do uh, to solve that particular issue. I'm, I'm not sure. Like, I, I don't like struggle sessions. I'm not, I don't want to force people to do things they don't want to do or any of that. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think it still- works. Is there still like tension between, I mean, I, 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 so, so many data points come to mind. Like, okay. So the first is, um, um, do you know that Yale study from 2018? So that study found that, um, white liberals and white conservatives are different in how they talk to blacks and Hispanics. And it found that white liberals dumb down their vocabulary Mm, and white conservatives don't. Right. I remember I was telling my friend Denisha about this and she went, Oh yeah, I know. We all know that. Like yeah. we all know that liberals do that and conservatives don't. It's like I, I remember when I first read that, and I was like, "And we call them the the racist? Like yeah. that's so yeah. racist! Like that right. just that implicit need to like cater, to, you know, that sort of woke thing where you assume yeah. this person needs your help." I right? think Tom, so Thomas Sowell, I think, is the one that said this back in the '90s. As a matter of fact, uh, a long time ago, I, I think he called it the subtle racism of lowered expectations or something like that. Yeah, he was, yeah, he was yeah. talking about affirmative action, but that was, I think that was the phrase used yeah. the subtle racism of lowered expectations. But yeah, I don't think there's uh, widespread tension between any of those yeah. groups of people. What I think is there's been very little effort by anybody with the ability to do so to <laughs> rally all of those groups together and be like, Hey, these like four or five things, these fundamental things that make the most sense in your life, are identical to this other group and there's this other group up here that's trying to you know make you all hate each other you guys have to get together and stop them somehow right yeah and it isn't like by force you can't stop something (sighs) boy i wish i wish people would realize this you can't stop ideas by force that's not how that works bad ideas are stopped by better ideas or Mm -hmm. good ideas um so i wonder i mean you you talk to working class people a lot pretty much everybody that listens to this show is in that group. 
<clears throat> I mean, aside from just doing shows like this and publications, I wonder what the average person can do, uh, you know, as their, you know, if life is busy and stuff, but what, 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 what can we instruct the average person to do to take back some of that power and build alliances with people that can help them fight back against this? That's a really great question. I mean, I've, I think they're already doing it. I mean, like in, in some ways, you know, like the the fact that there's no, um, that they have rejected, that many of these people have rejected the polarization that their politicians want them to, to, to turn into their beating hearts, right? That to me is like, um, so incredible, like given what they're up against, you know, in the, in this struggle to attain the American dream, like that they have refused and continue to refuse the easy outs. And I'm talking about like, you know, Hispanic working class people living on the border, black working class people living in the South, refusing to buy into that hatred, refusing to allow this to divide them. You know, that to me is like really humbling and inspiring. Like what the fuck is my excuse if mm. these people can be like, you know what? I don't, I'm not going to accept that language. So I sort of, I'm taking my lead from them. Um, um, but, but yeah, how do they get power out? How do they turn that into power? I think that is a really important question. And, um, of course it's like bound up in everything you're talking about, taking responsibility for your life and everything, but how do you sort of use that in order to, mm. to, to, to create a real force that can compete against the elites? Yeah, because all of these elites are trying to weaponize that power either entirely or in small subsects against each other right now. I mean, so totally. you, you know, that there is legitimate, useful intrinsic power in in this situation yeah. because it's being exploited by people who have an yeah. axe to grind right so how 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 does I, I guess how do all of us reclaim the fruits of our social labor yeah the social capital mm -hmm. you know it's and it's so it's such an important question because i'm thinking now specifically about well so one thing you're seeing is parents really taking back power over mm -hmm. like their kids education and that's great but a lot of that is happening in sort of upper class places like Loudoun County, you know, you go to places like, um, you know, rural Arkansas um, or communities of color where there's like black parents who, who know that their kids are being talked down to. They know their kids are being patronized and not taught how to read, but they're working two, three jobs. Like they don't have time to go to a, you know, they don't have time to go and, and, and stand up for their children's rights and themselves because just because of the economic reality. Um, I, I think that, you know, something that's really important is so listening to, to your podcast, you know, I going into that assumed, you know, oh, obviously, like everybody from your background is a Republican, right? Like that was totally wrong. Turns out you guys hate everybody, right? Like mm. that thing you said about daylight being a disinfectant, like, so for example, something people don't realize is that, you know, they think that this progressive agenda represents 50% of Americans, but actually only 6% of Americans identify as progressive and only 6% of black Americans. Americans identify as progressive. And that means, for example, so I'm getting these numbers from Pew and Pew asked people like one of the ways that you got into the progressive camp was they said, do you agree with the statement that America's institutions are so deeply racist that they need to be raised to the ground and rebuilt from the bottom up? Right. That's if you said, yes, you were put in the progressive camp. Just 6% sure. of black Americans are in that camp that said yes to that wholeheartedly over 90% of progressives said yes to that. So it's like the people that, you know, that the elites are trying to tell you 
give them moral credibility, they're not in their corner. You know what I mean? They're way on the other side, you know, something like abortion, right? Yeah. A lot, the majority of black Americans still vote for Democrats, you know, 85, 90 percent. But abortion is a very complex issue in the black community. Most black Americans are very ambivalent about the topic. You know, just the more you you can reject the thinking that gives the elites powers because they're they're just lying about all of this Mm -hmm. stuff. Right. It's it's their economic interests that they're representing and nobody else's. And, you know, like you said, daylight, 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 like talk to people and 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 assume your fellow American is a good person and agrees with you. But even if they don't agree with you that they maybe have a good reason for it. They may be something worth learning. You know, I, I find that the most dangerous ideas are the ones that I end up end up being true. Right. Like, so, you know, I, I remember like, you know, the first time I heard, you know, Heather McDonald. Right. And I thought to myself, my God, turn this off, turn this off. This is so dangerous. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because it was hate speech. It's because, you know, when I was ready to like actually honestly encounter the work three months later, I was like, God, like, like this, you know, this sounds true. Like there's yeah. something here that like sounds like probably, you know, going to look more into it. But that's where the danger comes, I think. And we have, like you said, this tribal knee jerk response to like, if we hear something that threatens our status, like we want to run away from it, right? We want to demonize anybody who thinks it. But, you know, when you take that out of the the, the picture, um, I think it's, you know, th- that thing where we're sharing power ends up happening sort of as a byproduct almost. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's a lot easier to ignore a problem. It's a lot easier to step over a homeless person or walk past a piece of garbage on the ground or whatever, because it, it, we, we see it all the time. People will, somebody will fall down in public and everybody will avert their gaze and, and they do it. I think they tell themselves they do it because they don't want to shame the other person or they want to spare them some embarrassment. But in reality, they're doing it because they, they don't want to accept responsibility and go help that person. I think that's what it is. Um, and to the other point you made, um, you're basically describing the principle of charity, right? It's a, it's like a first century, actually a first century Jewish principle. Uh, well, I don't know if it's necessarily a Jewish principle, but a rabbi in the first century or second century, I'm sorry, uh, came up with it. And the principle of charity says you take people at their best possible meaning. You don't like we're, we're in a culture now of, so what you're saying is dot, dot, dot. And then the worst possible meaning of what they just said, like, what is the point of that? That, that there's no, we've been around, these are misers. That's a miser attitude. That's a person that's like, Hey, isn't this state good? Oh yeah. I mean, it could be better. Like, what the fuck does that mean, dude? Uh, like if that's your attitude on life, you may as well just get out of the way because you're not helping, uh, anyone now to your point about people, uh, uh, coming together, rejecting the, the narrative, I suppose, of the elitists. Um, this is how, this is how marriage equality happened in America. It wasn't because of pride rallies or bills in Congress. It's because people started coming out and people who were confused about or whatever, didn't understand or had some kind of ethical or religious issue with it, started to realize that my neighbors, my family members, people I love are just gay. It just happens. And then you see uh, <clears throat> like really interesting science about gametes in utero and how that affects people. And it's like, oh, that's just something that happens naturally. I, I find it very hard to believe that somebody that believes in the 
uh, uh, the benevolence of whatever deity they believe in would think that that deity would create somebody to live a tortured life for no apparent totally. reason. Like that's nonsense. Right. So, totally. but, but it's the experience it's, it's, so maybe one of the things we can do, cause look, I, I agree with you and, and the polling agrees. We're put, we live in a very nearly post-racial society. Obviously you're never going to be fully post-racial because of tribalism, because there's going to be crazy people. But until I guess the woke industrial complex became a thing, no one really cared about any of that anymore. Um, but it, that, that's, that's the rejection part, but that only gets you so far, right? Yeah. That that's a black pill. Like you still have to get back involved in the process and reclaim your power. Um, I don't know what that looks like. I don't want to say like, Oh, go have barbecues with your black neighbors. Like what the fuck does that mean? But it, it's something like that, right? It's, it's, it's deciding to, it's deciding to find people. I, I, the, the greatest common factor, right? So you, you compare your system of beliefs and your wants and desires uh, and your culture to other people. And instead of saying, here are all the differences, you say, here are all the similarities. Here are all the things that we can come together on. The differences will sort themselves out over time. Um, and if we live in a place where people believe in the fundamentals, and I would say the vast majority of people believe in the same general things, life, liberty, happiness, you know what I mean? Taking care of other people. Um, all those other things seem to take care of themselves, right? Um, I just don't know, and hopefully we'll discover through the, the, the process of doing all these shows, some real world examples of how, of how people from different cultures can get together and realize how similar they are. Like that's, that's one of, one of the biggest goals that I have in the, in the show. Um, yeah, I, so it's uh, about two, two weeks ago we had on my other show, we had a, um, a very devout religious former Navy SEAL. He's like an ultra marathon runner, very interesting guy. And, you know, he went on a couple of tangents about his religious beliefs and stuff. And, you know, our audience knows who I am. They, I don't know what they expected me to do. I'm not going to be rude, but, um, my response to him was when he was making statements, I'm like, yeah, so here's at like absent of any kind of religion. Here's how you and I agree on all these things. You know what I mean? Like find a way to make what you believe agree with what other people believe instead of trying to point out the differences all the time. That seems like a useful endeavor. And it also will help you learn quite a bit about their culture. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, mate, get used to feeling like you owe it to other people to make the best case for your beliefs rather than, you know, that you're obviously right. And they're terrible for not already agreeing with you. Right. Well, that's, yeah. that's academic rigor, right? Like if you can't steal man, the other person's argument, yeah. then you don't understand yours or theirs, frankly. Um, <clears throat> so one of the other things about divisiveness is it's really easy and we see it in the workplace a lot and you probably may, maybe, I don't know if you've actually looked into this or not, but you've probably experienced quite a bit of it. When things get tough, when people are 
struggling to get by when there's a high uh, uh, operational tempo at your work, when you know there's a lot of stress, when maybe some things aren't going well. People seem to develop this attitude that I'm doing all the work and everybody else isn't doing anything. Um, and they start to get bitter and cynical about the process. And then that's, to me, is a microcosm for the social, excuse me, the societal decay that's happening in America right now. Um, it's very important for people to learn how to take a deep breath when they're angry. Uh, like Jordan Peterson says, stand up tall with your shoulders back. That's good advice. Uh, I would say take a deep breath when you're angry is good advice as well because if it's if it's a fleeting anger and you overreact then you've wasted time you have to repair a relationship um you've made your life and your relationship maybe your job less efficient you you've done a lot of damage in that very short amount of time but maybe worse is if you are actually legitimately mad like if the reason you're angry has a point how have you communicated that in a way that's going to fix it instead of just letting your anger distract you you know what i mean it's it, yeah. and that that seems like what we're doing right now so what are they what are these elite patricians doing with my tax dollars and my liberty while i'm angry at my neighbor yeah yeah it seems like definitely. a question that people should ask themselves anytime like if you're cruising Twitter or Instagram or Facebook and you see something about some other group of people or somebody saying something from a different political angle and it makes you angry, you should immediately ask yourself that question. What's happening with my tax dollars and my liberty while I'm squabbling over this wedge issue? Definitely. And I think also it's um, it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, getting married, having kids, being part of a community, going to synagogue or church, or if you're not religious, volunteer hearing, having communal ties is extremely important because a, like, you know, when you're supporting a family, if something goes wrong at work, you just, it's, you don't have that luxury anymore of just saying, you know, you know, fuck it. I'm out of here. Right. Like, because people are depending on you and sometimes you need to, you know, say I'm out of here, but often, you know, like those, those communal ties, like they don't just give you that sort of, you know, burden, but, you know, sacred burden that you're representing others. But I think being in a community where you see yourself reflected back, you know, with admiration by people who you have done things for, it's really, really important. Um, you know, I, I remember I was at a job where I didn't feel respected and I, it was really challenging. I got a lot of crap. <laughs> and, um, but I would go to synagogue and my rabbi really respects me and my fellow, you know, community members do, and we're in this fellowship together. And, you know, that bolsters you, it gives you, I think humans really need to feel admired at some deep level. Like we need to feel like we are contributing. And, and that is how you get that admiration is by giving to others. And, um, you know, obviously I struggle with this. I'm deeply narcissistic, selfish person, but, um, anytime that I feel low, if you do, when you give to somebody else, like that makes you feel, you can see that. I mean, you could, you feel yourself to be an admirable person. And I think that that bolsters you in situations where you might be feeling resentful and thinking, oh, he's getting what, what's really mine. Like we all have those feelings. Like he's getting ahead. How come I'm not, you know? And, and I think definitely, yeah, if there's like an ethnic divide or a religious divide, it's very easy to, you know, I think that amps up that feeling, but you know, that person is, you guys are struggling. You're in the same struggle against like, you know, like you, like you keep coming back to Dan, like the 
powers that be, you know, what are they doing with our stuff and our liberties while we're squabbling over here? Yeah. And that's what, that's where they want you. They want you uh, arguing amongst yourselves. It, it's uh, American politics is the modern Roman Coliseum. You know what I mean? It's, it's a distraction. It's, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> totally. we're, they're, they're throwing us breadcrumbs into the audience, you know, to keep us distracted while they pillage uh, both our, our wealth and our yeah. liberty. Um, and to your point, yeah, we talked about this yesterday. Um, you, you have to start training yourself again to say, instead of saying why them when somebody is successful, you say, why not me too? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, you should like train yourself to be inspired by other people's success, not intimidated by it. Totally. Because, you know, it, it is a... It, it is a true statement that a rising tide lifts all boats. I don't mean f literally in, in water, although that is true technically, but uh, <laughs> the better we all do, the better we all do. You know what I mean? It, it, that's, that's a fact of life. Mm -hmm. So it's like the thing you're talking about engaging in your community is it's the modern posse, right? I, we talked, I talked about this a little bit yesterday as well. There's no, up until really until the 20th century, there was no, professional police force in the United States. Um, as a matter of fact, most countries didn't have a professional police force. In the United States in particular, though, it lasted quite a bit longer than other places because, one, because we were pretty spread out, right? Like major cities had, they had a lot of private security and stuff like that, but no, there weren't 750,000 sworn police officers and a, and a bunch of de uh, deputy sheriffs and all that stuff. So um, people depended on, you would have a sheriff in your town who represented legal authority and and was capable of deputizing anybody right to to help them out mm -hmm. and that was the expectation the expectation was that if things go wrong for one of your neighbors you get off your ass and you go help because one it's the right thing to do and, and because two at some point it's going to happen to you and you want that infrastructure to exist to help you in your time of need what what has what is the modern american put into that infrastructure, right? I, 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 that's a real question I have. Like people, unless you've served in the, in the military or done extensive volunteer work or something like that, or, or been a first responder, what exactly have you put into the infrastructure that you're so ready to criticize? Yeah, I was going to say, like, you and your listeners have put in you know, quite sure, a yeah, bit, yeah. you know? But, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> something that, that I tell people that have, uh, that have left military service and public service in general, uh, as first responders, like your service never ends. That's the point. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, that's, that's what all of us believe. And it's why I think it was a big factor in the, uh, the vet suicide crisis, uh, that, that persists to a lesser degree, slightly lesser degree. It's still a big problem, but, um, <clears throat> people whose entire identity was wrapped up in the service of others, all of a sudden were left to service you know, just themselves, I guess. And that feels very empty to a person like me. I, I say this a lot and I, it sounds, it kind of sounds like a platitude. Um, and it doesn't really, it, it, for people that witness my demeanor and style, it may not necessarily fit with, with the vibe I put off, but the, the most important things you do in life won't be for yourself. And I, when I say important, I don't, I don't mean in some <sighs> ephemeral measure like, oh, these, this was 
20% more ethical than that or anything like that. I mean, the stuff that will benefit your life the most, that'll make you uh, the happiest, that will give you the most peace, that will give you the most satisfaction. They will not be things that you do for yourself. They'll be things done in the service of others. And uh, that is one of the foundational points of being a citizen. And I don't mean an American citizen. He's just a citizen in general is the rec- the recognition that all of this only exists if it exists for everybody. It only exists if we all put in our fair share and it only exists if we reject the divisiveness and believe in it together, regardless of who comes along and tries to teach us otherwise. Those, that's the only way that any of this really works. And it's the only way that our government could work too, is if we hold to that standard. If we have a government of for and by the people and the people suck, then the government sucks. <laughs> that's how that works, right? Like if you build a house out of shitty materials, you have a shitty house. But if you build a, really a house good out of point. good materials, then you have good, <laughs> you have a good house. I mean, why should we expect otherwise? Right. And, and what other, and what other social aspect or or physical aspect in the physical world can you put in shitty effort, bad attitude, and bad product and expect a good result? <laughs> It just doesn't right. like 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 AOC and Dan Crenshaw were both raised in America as Americans. Right. Like where yeah. we bear responsibility for them. Yeah. Too. Well, I mean, we've taught people like that, that one power is attractive and, and that maybe that's true um, <clears throat> for some people. But we've also taught them that. Celebrity and acceptance and popularity are more important than principles, yeah. and that's where they are now. Right. Um, yeah. They, they are a product of our own hands. Yeah. All, of, all, all of this, we are the author of our own issues here. And, and that, I think that's an important realization to make. And it's one of the things, actually, you recommended that I, instead of just, instead of just what I plan to do, which is outline ways to be a better citizen and, and things like that, but uh, you recommended that I challenge people right? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Not, not just like some (sighs) be nice to your neighbor nonsense, but like all of this misery that's around us right now, we did that. We, you, you may not have run for office or voted for the wrong people or whatever, but we all allowed it to happen. We allowed ourselves to get to where we are right now. And that, that, that sounds it sounds rough. I mean, it sounds like, man, I'm, that's, that's a very depressing fact to think about that. I'm responsible for all of this, that we are collectively, all the people that I actually do like and respect, we're also responsible for all this. It, 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 it can be a bad thing if you leave it there. But the good news is that if you created it, you can uncreate it. Right. If you, if you have the power, if we had the power to do that, then we have the power to undo it. A hundred percent. I think it's a very hopeful Mm. thing to say, because if somebody else made it, you have no ability to fix it. If you made it, you can fix it like every single one of you. And I think that you, I think you have the moral credibility to make that given how much you've sacrificed for this nation. Like you have the moral credibility to show up and say, all right, look, you know, I, this is what I did. And now this is what I'm going to expect and we're going to do it together. And I'm going to be there every step of the way. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, a, uh, it, it should be an empowering thing. And it, 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 
the end of her statement explains why people are so disenfranchised with the American political system because they feel like, well, I voted for this person and the other person got into office and did all this stuff. It's not quite that simple, is it? I mean, it's not as simple as casting a vote once every two years and then hoping for the best. That's not a game plan. You know, that's, that's a recipe for disaster because if you sit out the process, and I don't mean voting, if you set out the process of running this country uh, from your family to your community, to your state, to your country, if you set out the process, then you allow yourself to be ruled by lesser men. And that is unacceptable. And it should be unacceptable in this country. Um, <clears throat> all right. So we're, uh, we're going to wrap up here. Do you have any other thoughts that you'd like to share with the audience about this project or anything you've got going on? Please. Um, I'm very excited about the project. <laughs> I think a lot of people are going to be in, um, we're waiting for something like this and, um, yeah, it just fills me with hope and that's a really important feeling to have. So I'm excited to, to, to keep following along. Oh, thank you. We appreciate you, uh, spending some time with us today. Uh, and I appreciate all of you for watching and listening. This has been Citizen. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.